Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The partisan rangers of the Confederacy, the name conjures up romantic images of cavaliers carrying out dashing mounted raids behind Yankee lines. But many partisans also caused trouble for the Confederacy, so much so that the rebel government disbanded its partisan ranger units in 1864, with two exceptions. The famous John S. Mosby, the Grey Ghost, could keep his company, and so could the now forgotten Captain John McNeil. We'll find out about the latter from Steve French, author of Phantoms of the South Fork, Captain McNeil and His Rangers, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited. Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guests show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight, uh, as always, almost always, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. 
not, however, speaking for the university or the state or anyone else. My guest will likewise speak only for himself, as we always do here. It's a cold, well, chilly, not too cold night in January 2018, third show of the new calendar year, the new spring semester. Last week, I mentioned how I, we were all on the uh, edge of a snow event. There were tiny flakes, a few scattered flakes falling during the show last Wednesday night, and I was concerned that it would be enough to close down the university and I would have to redo my syllabus and, and rethink the plans for the rest of the semester because they don't incorporate uh, makeup days. You just have to figure out how to get that material in. Well, it did snow. A good half inch or so fell. Uh, the blizzard of 18 will long be talked about. Uh, it was enough to cancel morning classes on Thursday, so I did, in fact, miss a lecture period. And rather than try to uh, squeeze it in the, the material into remaining times or reset the entire syllabus, I boldly entered the 21st century and tried recording the lecture. Uh, one would think that having done a, a podcast for what, what's it been uh, 14 years uh, before the word podcast had been coined, that I would be familiar with uh, digital history, digital humanities more than I am. I've never actually taught a course online and had never recorded a lecture to be uh, posted on Blackboard for the students to see the tiny picture of me in the screen and the uh, the images on the, the slide show across the rest of the screen. It was not that hard to do. Uh, talking to you each week meant it was not hard to talk into a microphone and, and while looking at the screen, but it was very hard to get the finished product properly uh, put into the software where the students could see it. It took several hours working with the technical support people at ECU who were excellent, I will say. They really did a good job talking me through it. And eventually we got it done. So now uh, students, uh, when I see them tomorrow, will hopefully at least some of them have viewed a recorded lecture. And I'll ask them for feedback. Uh, how was the voice? How was the imagery? What did it work? How does it compare to a live lecture? And I'll find out what they think. And uh, maybe I don't have to teach uh, in person anymore. I would hate that. I, I really enjoy the, the give and take of the classroom, but it is interesting to be able to use uh, different technologies. I look forward to getting, getting feedback from the students about this. Speaking of feedback, last semester's feedback is in, and uh, one student on, on the form where they get to put in their comments wrote, uh, and I think it must have been a graduate student because it was so well written, uh, uh, said that they thought uh, Dr. P was uh, beneath his gravitas. He was uh, obviously disappointed and bitter at not having, perhaps at not having received a more prestigious uh, appointment to a more prestigious institution. I, I was struck by that because bitter and disappointed uh, is surprises me to find that that's the first thing I project. And I, I guess if that's so, then then you've been gracious in listening to me uh, project my bitterness and disappointment for the last 14 years. I thought I was actually doing pretty well here, but uh, but I learned otherwise, so we'll, we'll carry on. And 
see if I can swallow my bitterness and disappointment for another 14 years and make it through to eventual retirement here at East Carolina University. In other uh, other feedback, I suppose, uh, comes in the form of news from the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. Last week, I urged you to take a look at this May's uh, trip, this hallowed ground, and I find out this past week uh, it's sold out. We've filled the bus. So um, if if you didn't get aboard this year for, for the this hallowed ground's tour of Civil War sites in Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland uh, in, my, in May, uh, there are other tours with other historians, excellent ones, uh, Mark Bielski, uh, Jack Mountcastle, both have been on the show. You can listen to them talk uh, on the show and sign up for their trips or uh, wait around for the following year. Or if you're not busy at the end of February this year, 2018, Stephen Ambrose uh, Historical Tours is putting on a seminar covering multiple wars of American history, meeting in New Orleans from February 24th to March 3rd. I will be there for uh, part of that. Uh, have to get back and teach, but I'll, I'll be there for a few days, give a couple of talks on Civil War topics. So if you can join us for that, that looks really interesting. I wish I could stay for the whole thing. There are a lot of really wonderful history-related sites, uh, obviously, in New Orleans and, and obviously worth visiting. If you can't do that, you can always listen to the upcoming shows of Civil War Talk Radio. We'll be talking with Michael Hill next week. He's the co-author of an atlas of North Carolina in the Civil War. It's called The Old North State at War. February 7th brings a book about the Army of Virginia, the Union Army of Virginia, John Pope's army. Uh, the author is John Matsui, and the, author, the title is The First Republican Army. looks very promising. We'll have a return visit from Dan Crofts the following week, uh, writing about Lincoln and the politics of slavery, where we'll learn about the 13th Amendment of 1861, the one that did not uh, get ratified. We'll hear from Paula Whitaker the following week. She's written about Julia Wilbur. I haven't read the book yet, so I can't tell you who Julia Wilbur is, but I'm looking forward to it. On the 28th, Eric Lee Smith, game designer, will be with us to talk about his efforts to describe the Civil War in ludic fashion. And then it'll be time for spring break, and we'll all relax. There'll be a lot going on here uh, academically during that time, but I'm going to stop talking about that and talk tonight about a... uh, Uh, Well, first, a quick reminder, you can find out about all this from our website, www.impedimentsofwar.org. You can donate to the show. You can see who's coming up next. Uh, You can go to the Facebook page and get information likewise there. And from all those, you'll find out we have tonight's guest, uh, Steve French, who just uh, got added to the calendar very recently. We had to Uh, move some things around, and I'm delighted he's able to make it. Uh, He has written a book called Phantoms of the South Fork, Phantoms of the South Fork, Captain McNeil and His Rangers. Uh, It's published by the Kent State University Press, and he joins us tonight to tell us uh, who was Captain McNeil and and 
what was, where's the South Fork, and so on. So, uh, Mr. McNeil, uh, Mr. McNeil, you're not there. Mr. French, <laughs> no, are you not. there? Uh, yeah. But you're there. Uh, welcome to the show. Welcome. Or thanks, Jerry. I'm uh, glad to be. Uh, glad, glad that you asked me to uh, to talk uh, talk a little bit about the book tonight. Well, it, it's uh, it, in, in very interesting book. I enjoyed reading it. Uh, you and I have not crossed paths on the Civil War trail. The dust jacket says you are a former middle school history teacher, and for that, I salute you. Uh, I got used to it <laughs> over the years. I got used to the students, but uh, I, but I, I worked in a. Oh, go ahead. I I taught in uh, Martinsburg, West Virginia, for thirty eight years, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the a lot of the uh, history courses, mostly West Virginia history, which is uh, a subject here here and uh, uh, good. Uh, it's a good uh, uh, state to teach Civil War history. It uh, uh, a lot of the uh, text is uh, I'd say three to four weeks of the uh, uh, course will be on Civil War history. Well, it, it's certainly a obviously a vital part of the country's history, uh, right there on the border. I have a graduate student right now who is doing a uh, thesis on uh, the division. Be- into Union and Confederate camps among people where he's looking both at their religious affiliations and their uh, economic connections to the B&O Railroad and, and trying yes. to see if he can draw some some lines that help explain why one family chose to go one way and the next one went, went differently. And it, he's and made me aware. A lot aware of it had to do with the, you know, the families that were here first, the Scotch-Irish and, and so on, uh, usually sided with the Confederates, uh, the ones that came later, uh, the Germans, uh, you know, it seemed to uh, uh, side uh, in eastern West Virginia. I'm talking about it seemed to side with the right. Union. Well, there, there's uh, a lot of interesting research to be done, certainly to to puzzle that up. But I'm I've been interested talking with uh, with my student, learning about this, and then reading your book fell right into place as you describe the events that take place there. Mm-hmm. Um, so what? Uh, uh, Beyond the, the geography being in the area, what drew you to the, the story of McNeil and his rangers? Uh, well, I started writing for the Washington Times, features for the Washington Times in the, on their Civil War page in 1995. And um, I found over the years, uh, as it continued through the Civil War page and later on the Americans, America at War page, if you sent the editor a... Uh, story about West Virginia, you usually got got in, got your story in in the paper a lot faster. And um, uh, a lot of interest in, in the stories of West Virginia. I've, I uh, specifically, uh, for a long time, uh, would write about the, uh, the partisans, whether it would be Imboden, uh, a little bit about McNeil. Of course, he, he was uh, with Imboden on and off. Uh, Mosby, uh, a lot of the... Um, a minor uh, Confederate guerrillas, or uh, like uh, Redmond Burke, uh, who uh, rode with Stewart and was one of Stewart's top scouts. But um, it's you know I, I was drawn to, to this uh, uh, work. I had uh, collected a lot of information on McNeil through through my uh, study of Imboden, and um, and 
2013, a friend of mine, Clyde Kale in Morgantown, uh, called and suggested uh, three topics uh, that he had lots of information on. Uh, the Jones and Bowden raid, uh, General Kelly, who, of course, is a big part of this book, and uh, uh, McNeil's Rangers. And uh, I, I decided I'd go with McNeil's Rangers and uh, do a lot of the groundwork uh, go to the different sites of, of these small skirmishes. And, and I, uh, over the years, have developed a network of people who uh, you know, are uh, mostly uh, experts in, in their area, whether it be Moorfield, West Virginia, or Petersburg, or Cumberland, Maryland. And um, um, you know, it took about four and a half years to put everything together. Well, that, that uh, shows in the... Uh Acknowledgements. You certainly you mentioned a large number of people who obviously had a lot to do with the book. Uh, your map maker, I, I want to give credit for before uh, forgetting to go any further, uh, did an outstanding job. I really like the uh, the maps in this book. They're extremely clear. John Heiser, of uh, he works at the uh, uh, park ranger at Gettysburg. He works in the library there. Uh, it, it, full credit to him for, for the maps. They really do help elucidate this, uh, especially because the corner of eastern West Virginia that we're talking about, western Maryland, uh, isn't you know as well known to the average Civil War student as, say, Gettysburg or uh, Antietam or Shiloh. So it's, it's useful to have that. When it, It's a pet peeve of mine when authors mention a bunch of place names and the map they provide doesn't have any of those names on it. Uh, right. That doesn't happen. <laughs> that does not happen here. Um, yeah. Well, we're going to take a break, but here's what I'm going to ask when we come back so you can think about it for a minute. Uh, the partisan rangers themselves are it, not, uh, they're not regular soldiers, but they're not guerrillas. They're, what exactly are they? That's a question we'll ask our guest tonight, Steve French, when we come back in just a moment. He's the author of Phantoms of the South Fork, Captain McNeil and His Rangers. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. 
Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Steve French, author of Phantoms of the South Fork, Captain McNeil and His Rangers. Steve, at the end of the first segment, I asked the question about uh, who are the partisan rangers of the Confederacy. The, what, they're not regular soldiers, they're not part of Stuart's cavalry, but they're not simply guerrillas fighting on their own hook. Uh, what exactly is a partisan ranger? Well, in uh, April of 1862, the Confederate Congress is going to pass the Partisan Ranger Act, and uh, it was primarily designed to give guerrilla fighters a chance to join an auxiliary unit that would be connected to the Confederate Army. So they would have some uh, protection if they were captured and uh, wouldn't be uh, executed by the opposing force for being a guerrilla. They, you know, they would be a partisan ranger in a regular enlisted outfit. They would be given uh, uh, regular pay and so on. Uh, but the... Uh, the benefit of being partisan ranger was anything they captured from the enemy uh, could be sold back to the Confederate government, Confederate quartermasters, or it could be uh, kept by the partisan ranger, or it could uh, uh, be sold at private auction. So especially with McNeil, uh, some of the, later on in uh, 1863, in 1864, some of these uh, private auctions would net into the thousands of dollars, thirty dollars to $40,000, which would be divided between uh, 50 to 60 men. Um, in Pennsylvania, the, uh, McNeil and other partisans were called land pirates because they had that protection from the, federal, uh, from the Confederate government. They would... Uh, uh, be under Confederate commanders. Uh, for example, when uh, Imboden started the first Virginia Partisan Ranger Rangers in uh, the summer of 1862, he would uh, he would an- answer to uh, uh, Stonewall Jackson. And um, later on, Imboden will go into the regular service, take a lot of his men with him. McNeil 
and uh, his son uh, Jesse would, uh, and a few of their men would stay and form form their own partisan range, continuous partisan rangers. But they would uh, technically be under Imboden's command. But uh, it was a way to get more men into the service in in one way. But uh, it was opposed by many Confederate officers and many uh, uh, Confederate government officials. And uh, in February of 1864, because of uh, uh, numerous uh, depredations, the final one being maybe uh, Harry Gilmore's uh, uh, robbery of a uh, B&O train near Charlestown, West Virginia, uh, the the, uh, uh, Confederate Congress rescinded that act, but they allowed Secretary Ward Seddon to keep as uh, Ranger outfits any uh, uh, any that he wanted. And, of course, I believe you said earlier in the program, he did keep uh, uh, Mosby's Rangers and also McNeil's Rangers. So these, these units are intended to be attractive to people to join. You get to capture an enemy wagon train, keep what's in it. Uh, but that makes them more attractive than the regular service, and, and you get soldiers deserting and... Correct. Joining, joining. So uh, correct, and that's so, what that's the uh, problem. Uh, Rosser, Thomas Rosser, General Rosser, will uh, uh, write about to pass it up the line, uh, up the chain of command to Early, and then on to Robert E. Lee in the winter of eighteen sixty four. And uh, he had had trouble with some of his men deserting to Mosby's command, and uh, from time to time, or. And uh, also, he'd had trouble with McNeil uh, not following his orders, you know, to the letter uh, on some of the expeditions in West Virginia. Well, let's talk a bit about McNeil. Um, who who was this this fellow? Okay, McNeil Where did he come was, from. McNeil was born about 1815. He lived in uh, in uh, the old fields, Moorfield, West, what's now West Virginia area. He's going mm-hmm. to marry. Uh, Young, he's about 21. He, uh, his wife Jemima Cunningham, and uh, both are big families from that area. You, you know, uh, relatives all over the area. They will eventually move to Missouri, and uh, there he becomes a, uh, a respected uh, uh, farmer and uh, well known for uh, raising shorthorn cattle, wins many awards, and so on. The war comes along. Uh, he will join the Missouri State Guard with his uh, three sons, Jesse, George, and David. They will be in a number of fights early in the war. Uh, George is killed at the Battle of Lexington. Uh, John Hansen, Captain McNeil, is going to be wounded uh, there. David's going to go back to the farm. Uh, Jesse and, of course, uh, Captain McNeil will continue on, but uh, they're going to be captured. And to make a long story short, um, when they're uh, in the St. Louis area, they're going to make their escape separately and make their way back to uh, to the Moorfield area. Uh, even uh, one uh, reminisces by reminisced by one of Jesse's by Jesse's wife. Uh, in her old age, but I think about 1927, she uh, related that on his way back to Moorfield, her husband, Jesse, had uh, helped uh, care for the wounded of Shiloh. But 
they're going to come back, and uh, this is about time in the uh, spring of 1862, they're going to make their escape. They'll be back in the uh, area of Moorefield, both of them, by the summer, and that's when they're going to form this uh, company, mostly of relatives, young uh, uh, nephews of John Hanson McNeil's cousins, um, their friends, some uh, uh, southern boys from Cumberland, Maryland, Frostburg, Maryland, and uh, that's they're going to join up with um, uh, in Bowdoin in uh, the fall of 1862, and uh, their specialty is going to be raiding uh, uh, Union wagon trains in uh, in that area. Of course, the Union Army is uh, trying to keep the B&O Railroad open, and uh, they will uh, have uh, uh, outposts in um, Romney, West Virginia, in uh, later in Moorefield, West Virginia, and Petersburg, and all these outposts have to be supplied. So uh, it's a good opportunity for, for partisan rangers, for sure. The the place we're talking about, uh, and listeners, if you don't have your maps handy, good time to put the show on pause, get out a good atlas, and uh, open it up and and look at uh, what is today West Virginia, what was Western uh, Virginia. We're talking about the area west of the Shenandoah Valley, where the the western hook of Maryland extends and then pokes downward into uh, Western Virginia. That area is mountainous and uh, certainly good for this kind of raiding operation. Lots of lots of woods and hills to hide behind and uh, lots of choke points where wagon trains have to go through. So uh, I, as you say, Steve, this is where, uh, this is what McNeil does uh, at, at first. Uh, what, what he's best at is, is raiding, capturing Union uh wagon trains full of supplies. You mentioned uh, uh, one thing you'd consider writing about the the, the, Jin, uh, the Jones in Bowdoin raid. That takes place around this time, an attempt mm-hmm. to burn the bridges on uh, the B&O railroad, which passes through there and is a critical link for the Union uh, going east and west. They don't succeed in destroying those bridges, but it certainly is a, a tempting target. Yes, sir. Um, especially the bridges at Rollsburg, uh, West Virginia, and the Sheet River Canyon. Um, the uh, invasion of the Northwest uh, had been uh, put together by uh, McNeil and um, uh, John M. Bowden, and uh, through uh, the machinations, let's say, of Grumble Jones, Grumble Jones um, gets command of the Eastern Wing. And uh, which uh, really it was it was uh, McNeil had been the leader before that, but uh, of course Jones had been a regular army officer, and, and Lee would give him the command. But they were uh, successful in throughout the whole raid, except uh, they didn't they didn't really uh, uh, accomplish much at Rollsburg while uh, McNeil. Uh, while uh, Jones was attacking Rollsburg, McNeil was with uh, the 12th Virginia Cavalry and others, and, and they had occupied Oakland, Maryland, and they went to Morgantown for a while. And um, when the raid was about half over, uh, Jones will send uh, McNeil back to Shandoah Valley with a lot of captured livestock. 
But yeah. uh, that that would lead the next year for in one of Jones or one of uh, McNeil's uh, biggest accomplishments, the destruction of the of the uh, Union Rail Center, uh, Piedmont, uh, West Virginia, and Bloomington, Maryland. Uh, that time, uh, about a year, almost exactly a year later, uh, McNeil's going to lead approximately seventy men. In, into Piedmont, Piedmont, West Virginia, and destroy all the shops there, uh, wreck a lot of locomotives, and so on. But he he kept that kind of secret and uh, did it on his own hook, rather than uh, you know have uh, Lee or uh, Imboden put someone else in charge of that of that raid. Now, as you point out, the the partisan raiders are still subject to uh, to military law and to the uh, command of their higher officers. So in the summer of 1863, when Lee's Army of Northern Virginia invades uh, the North, passes through Pennsylvania into, or through Maryland into Pennsylvania, um, Imboden's cavalry accompanies them, and uh, that means McNeil uh, goes along as well. And your description here uh, is – you don't pull any punches. This is not – uh, their finest hour, it seemed to me. There's a lot of robbery, uh, a lot of kidnapping of uh, free or formerly enslaved black people and, and sending them south into slavery. Uh, there are, there are it, romantic aspects of, of the partisan rangers, but this is not one of them, is it? No, no. Once they get across that Pennsylvania line, as far as the uh, rangers are concerned, everything's fair game. And... Uh, a lot of this goes back um, to the, the, the incidents uh, around Romney earlier in the war where uh, federal troops burnt, burned a lot of uh, uh, farmhouses and so on uh, uh, because of their so-called involvement in uh, guerrilla activity. And then, uh, of course, uh, General Milroy and some of his uh, actions in the mountains of West Virginia. So... Uh, once they got across the Pennsylvania state line, uh, everything, as far as McNeil's men were concerned, not, not as much with Imboden. Imboden's following behind McNeil. I guess mm-hmm. he's the point of the spear, and uh, he's got 50 to 60 men. And uh, especially uh, when they get into Mercersburg, Pennsylvania, they're going to be there for uh, almost three days, and they're going to... Uh, uh, collect a lot of animals, a lot of uh, uh, sheep, cattle. Um, as you said, they, uh, I believe it's 21 African Americans they're going to take out of uh, Mercersburg. Some of them are uh, mer- citizens of Mercersburg. They're free uh, mm-hmm. uh, black citizens, African Americans. And uh, also the, in Mercersburg, they're going to pick up uh, a teenager named Richie Holler. That's going to become one of their best scouts. He comes into McNeil's camp and offers to uh, 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 tell him where the uh, uh, or show show them where the uh, merchants are hiding their goods in a place called uh, near Cove Gap. And uh, Haller is a refugee from Missouri. He has five brothers in the Confederate Army. McNeil takes him in and. Uh, he 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 shows them almost uh, everything, but as you said, it's uh, certainly not their finest hour. And, uh, now, it, when when they get back, they uh, they 
engage in you know a series of, of small actions through the rest of 1863 and 1864. Uh, I was surprised to read at that point that no no none of uh, McNeil's men had been killed in action right uh, up through 1864. It's a year and a half before McNeil loses a man killed in action. Now, he'll have men wounded, mm-hmm. but they are always fighting uh, with the initiative. They're always going to uh, 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 attack by surprise. A couple times in the Gettysburg campaign, at the end of it near Clear Spring, uh, they caught out in the open. They were caught out in the open, uh, units of them, and, and had, had some men wounded. But uh, California Joe Rosser... Uh, He's going to be killed between uh, on the road between uh, Moorefield and Petersburg, West Virginia, and uh, as they're trying to capture a small Union patrol. Well, that is, is the first. It, of course, will turn out not to be the last. Um, right. Just have a, just a, in the minute before our next break, uh, Hans McNeil gets court-martialed in 1864. Uh, what was that about? Um. One thing it was about was uh, it was mentioned that he he took in deserters. He'd had a falling out with uh, uh, John M. Bowden, and uh, one thing is it said about uh, uh, he was he wasn't keeping his reports up to date. Another another man there was a Texan who rode with him the last year of the war named Henry Trueheart. and he said it had something to do with Hans taking his shotgun and hitting one of the men over the head with it. But uh, I've, I've been, you know, I couldn't find the, uh, of course, the Confederate court martial. But he was found innocent in two, uh, two different court martial trials. Well, it, it's uh, just the beginning of, of McNeil's troubles. In some ways, uh, we'll come back in just a minute and talk more about the campaigns of 1864, the Valley Campaign, uh, uh, Franz Siegel's. Union Army and uh, its adventures ending at Newmarket, uh, things listeners are familiar with, but especially we'll find out what McNeil was doing in those. We'll learn about that when we come back, talking to Steve French, author of Phantoms of the South Fork, Captain McNeil and His Rangers. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. 
all the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Steve French, author of Phantoms of the South Fork, Captain McNeil and his Rangers. We've been learning about uh, Captain John H. McNeil and his partisan rangers fighting in West Virginia in the uh, throughout the Civil War, much like Mosby's rangers, more familiar, uh, doing kind of the same things, uh, sneaking behind enemy lines, capturing wagon trains, uh, burning bridges. They are not guerrillas, they're regular, uh, but they're not regular soldiers. They're partisan rangers, a sort of uh, mid-status. And that status, Steve, uh, uh, does not disguise the fact that there really is, practic- for all practical terms, a guerrilla war going on in western Maryland and West Virginia at, at this part of the war. You talk about the uh, uh, the swamp dragons, for example. Tell us about them. No, people uh, who formed at the beginning of the war, they formed their own companies and uh, tried to get supplies uh, uh, from the reorganized government of West Virginia or from Union uh, uh, forces in uh, New Creek or uh, Cumberland, Maryland. And uh, as the war went on, uh, they would become, uh, and West Virginia became a state, they would be taken uh, into service as regular West Virginia troops, and they would get uh, supplies uh, 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 sent to them and so on, and they basically would be regular soldiers. They're not in the Union Army, but they're, they're in, under West Virginia control. And um, it's very vicious warfare in the mountains, not only between McNeil's men and, uh, and these swamp dragons, but also uh, there's other guerrillas there, like the Harper Brothers, uh, uh, one of the uh, Swamp Dragon outfits, four of them, caught, uh, led by a man named Samson Snyder, caught uh, uh, one, Bill Harper, one of the great gods of the Alleghenies, in, uh, uh, one snowy night, and, uh, and uh, you know, killed him and uh, threw his body in, into the hogs. And, uh, uh, so it was very vicious as, as it went on. But the, uh, you know, you, the Union people would uh, send... Uh, Send re- repeated requests for help from regular troops and so on, and they would get it sometimes. But uh, they were mostly uh, out there on their own against against not only uh, uh, McNeil and his men, but other guerrillas, and also uh, uh, from soldiers of uh, cavalrymen from the Laurel Brigade. Even uh, uh, Elijah White took his uh, men into a place called the Smoke Hole during the winter of eighteen sixty-five. After after uh, some of those swamp dragon outfits. Uh, how did they get the name Swamp Dragon? It, it came from uh, at the beginning of the war. It was, they were calling them Swamp Dragoons, hmm. and uh, I guess yeah, it's, it's <laughs> it, easier to say. Yeah, you know, and it, it just it, it was just a nickname that 
developed into Swamp Dragon, as far as I could tell. So but they, these are... they had regular um, militia units, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. different companies and so on, John Bond's company, Isaac Alt's company. And um, uh, especially towards the end of the war, it, they were uh, hunting each other down. And uh, I know uh, one uh, ranger, uh, Sergeant uh, Joseph Van Deaver, he was... More or less in that last year, one of the gun hands or the gun hand from McNeil's Rangers, uh, even though he got his parole, uh, he he headed west for eight years. You know, it was uh, because people knew who he was, and, and they knew who he was, and and right. uh, <laughs> well, that that, <laughs> that really shows through in this book that that the uh, you know a series of short chapters describing small sharp actions between not divisions or corps, not even brigades or regiments, but just uh, a handful of men on each side, uh, whether they are guerrillas or partisans or regular troops, they tend to be from the area. They, they often seem to know each other, and the, the deaths are individual. Uh, you know, we read about 7,000 men killed or wounded at Cold Harbor, and it, it's, it's you know, stomach-turning. But when you read about uh, Captain Stump, uh, one individual being killed uh, by after being captured, uh, it, it it's very vivid uh, the the individual uh, blood feud that you describe in this book. Yes, yes, they, especially towards that uh, from November on, and maybe before that, but from November eighteen sixty four on to the end of the war, it was uh, it was rough business in those mountains. Now, uh, McNeil himself uh, eventually uh, uh, takes a bullet. Right. And it, there's some ambiguity about how that happened. Could you describe what, how you see that event? Well, it was an early morning attack on, a, uh, I believe, a couple companies at 14th Pennsylvania Cavalry uh, guarding uh, a bridge at, at, on the Valley Pike at Means Bottom. And... Uh, the rangers came in, the dark and the fog, a lot of shooting. Uh, they captured the companies there, and uh, they turn around, and there's Captain McNeil on the ground with a, uh, uh, seriously wounded. And uh, he's going to linger for about a month and then die. But the question is, uh, what happened? Uh, now, you have people, the rangers had different opinions about it. Some of them believed it was an accidental uh, shooting. Uh, Jefferson Duffy, uh, uh, a young man who rode with the Rangers uh, that last year and later became uh, one of their main uh, uh, chroniclers of of their actions, um, he, he said a Union man later claimed he had shot uh, uh, McNeil, but that hadn't happened. But there was... Um, a uh, stranger had had uh, maybe from the first Maryland Cavalry had had uh, been with them for a while, and right before this incident, uh, he and McNeil had had problems. He had stolen some chickens from a farmer, and uh, McNeil may have hit him, or there was something that went on. And uh, a few of McNeil's men believe uh, he took that opportunity when. Uh, when the fight was at its highest, to, to shoot McNeil. So, so it could have been uh, uh, 
friendly fire and not not fracking. <laughs> not really not, friendly, not, but it's not, but it's not it's accidental. On the same but, side. Uh, but but uh, uh, malicious uh, killing. Of right, it's, it's questionable. Uh, his what happens to the unit after after Captain McNeil is wounded? Okay, Jesse uh, is given command of the unit, and um, he's. Uh, kind of rash and foolhardy at times. Uh, he uh, drinks a good bit, uh, and uh, some of uh, the men are uh, kind of wary of being in his, his command. But he, according to Henry Trueheart, he promises to quit drinking, and he will for the rest of the war, and maybe beyond that. Uh, and on November 22nd, of course, he, uh, McNeil had been shot. Captain McNeil had been shot on the, the 3rd of October. But November the 27th, as uh, Rosser is moving towards New Creek on his famous raid on that uh, rail center there. Um, near Old Fields, uh, Jesse McNeil and the Rangers, plus Company F of the 7th Virginia Cavalry, and uh, Woodson's Company A Missourians. That's another strange group that's, that are out in the mountains. They attack two uh, uh, Union-mounted infantry companies, West Virginia companies, and rout them. And from that time on, everyone uh, with the Rangers acknowledged Jesse is in, going to be in command of the unit. And then uh, they continue on, and we talked about the partisan warfare in the mountains between, uh, for the rest of the war. But uh, Jesse is hurt in a fall uh, near Christmas of 1864. And uh, while he's recovering, his mind goes back to this uh, plan that his father had to go into cut. Cumberland and captured General Kelly, who is command of the railroad in that area. And it goes back to uh, uh, Kelly had uh, placed Miss McNeil uh, uh, in 1860, August of 1863. He'd ordered her arrest when she came through Oakland, Maryland on the train. And she was taken to Camp Chase with a couple of her younger children for a while. And uh, there was a uh, one of the soldiers from Cumberland with McNeil, John Fay, he suggested at that time that they should go into Cumberland and, and catch Kelly or capture Kelly and embarrass him. So uh, as Jesse was recovering, he uh, starts to put this plan together. He sends spies into Cumberland. He also, there's women there, there's uh, southern women that are spies that uh, uh, maybe uh, Mary Daly, who eventually married George Crook, uh, her brother rides with McNeil, Jim Daly. Um, and then uh, something happens in February to speed this plan up. Uh, Harry Gilmore's in the area, and uh, the uh, Phil Sheridan sends in uh, his Sheridan scouts, and plus Colonel Whitaker with about 300 men to capture Gilmore. During, well, they do capture Gilmore, but they also capture five of the Rangers. And uh, this is a time when, uh, later on, uh, uh, as they're coming back, when Captain Stump's killed. And uh, so Jesse comes up with this plan then. You know, let's go with it. Let's try to capture Kelly. Uh, Crook was also there. They're going to get him and try to trade them for uh, those five men in, in uh, Fort McHenry. And uh, to make a long story short, uh, Faye and Howler go into uh, near Cumberland and uh, give the spies uh, their orders to get in town and uh, 
uh, meet them, uh, meet Jesse and, and the men he'll be bringing from West Virginia on the, the night of the 20th and tell them where the generals are, which hotels, and if everything's uh, good, they're, they're going to go for it. And they do. Uh, they're going to go into Cumberland, Maryland, on the morning of uh, February 21st, 1865, at about 3 o'clock. And um, many of them are going to be dressed as, as Union soldiers or Union troopers. And they will go into separate hotel rooms and capture both George Crook and Kelly. And they will uh, make their escape, even though pursued by uh, later on by three Union columns, cavalry columns. And um, they will get the generals to, to Richmond. And it, put it's them a, in a remarkable story. Uh, it's certainly the most famous exploit of McNeil and his rangers, the, uh, uh, the the capture, the kidnapping of General Kelly and General Crook. And it, as I was reading it, I was thinking, no way is this going to work. Uh, literally just walking down Main Street with these generals, uh, <laughs> taking them out. Uh, so listeners, you want to get a copy of Phantoms of the South Fork uh, and find out how, how that raid uh, succeeded. See, we have just a few minutes left. Uh, let me fire up the Civil War talk radio time machine and ask you uh, a, a final question in just uh, 30 seconds. If you could go back in time to the Civil War era for half an hour and talk to any one person, except for Captain McNeil, uh, just to make it harder, uh, who would you want to talk to? Well, as far as this book is concerned, the most interesting person that I've uh, discovered or rediscovered for people was a man who was not with, was not a ranger. His name was John Pierce. He was in the 7th Virginia Cavalry. He's, he's a middle-aged man, but uh, he did some fantastic things that, that, have, that have been forgotten. And uh, I wrote a... Uh, uh, probably about a 3,500-word piece for the uh, uh, British magazine, uh, uh, Civil, uh, United Kingdom Civil War Roundtable magazine, uh, Crossfire, about Pierce. And, but he would ride with uh, 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 McNeil occasionally. Uh, he's, he's, uh, after the war, although he wasn't on the raid, he was on the reinforcements as they came back. But after the war, when he applied for his pardon, from President uh, Johnson, some of the uh, people in the area said, don't give him a, a pardon because he uh, stole more horses than any 10 Confederates in this area. And uh, Governor Borman of West Virginia uh, uh, protested, don't give him a pardon. But the, the man who, get, who uh, wrote a uh, letter of recommendation was George Crook. And uh, George Crook... Uh, uh, wrote that Pierce had treated him very kindly when he was a prisoner. But uh, he, he's one I would like to investigate more. Also, uh, I mentioned him before, Joe Van Dever. Well, was, I can uh, only give you one choice because we've run out of time, unfortunately. But I will put in a plug for Crossfire, the, uh, the journal of the U.K. Civil War Roundtable. Listeners, if you look that up online, it's always full of interesting reading. And I'll have to go back and look for your piece, Steve, on, on uh, John Pierce of the 7th Virginia Cavalry. In the meantime, uh, 
It was a pleasure reading the book, Phantoms of the South Fork, Captain McNeil and His Rangers, by our guest tonight, Steve French. Steve, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you very much, Jerry. Very enjoyed it very much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.